passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. We continue our journey through the book of Genesis, and we've been in Genesis uh, for the last couple months, uh, specifically looking at the life of Abraham. And last week, we looked at one of the most popular stories about the life of Abraham, one of the most difficult times in Abraham's life, and that was the story of Abraham and the sacrifice of his son Isaac. See, last week, as we opened up to Genesis chapter 22, we saw one of the most difficult things that God would ask anyone to do, a near impossible test for Abraham. After all that God has done for him, after waiting a hundred years for a child and God finally answering that prayer, after raising Isaac to be a young man, God asks him to offer up his son as a sacrifice as we looked at this passage, this text, we saw that this was, at first glance, a little bit contrary to God's character. After all, God isn't normally someone that you would expect to, to ask you to offer up a, a child. We ask the question, why? Why is it that God asks so much of Abraham? As we studied this passage, we saw that simply this is a test. God was testing Abraham to grow his faith, to deepen his faith in him. And, and Abraham responds with obedience. And Abraham's response of obedience really shows us, with, uh, shows us what obedience should look like in our own lives. There's this uh, theological concept out there that uh, basically says that the first time anything is mentioned in the Bible should really influence the way that we understand what that means. Interestingly, the first time the word obedience is ever used in Scripture is right here in Genesis chapter 22. It's a reminder to us of what God asks of us when he asks us to be obedient. It doesn't mean that God is going to let us see the entire plan before it all plays out. It's not that God is going to let us see how things will turn out in the end. It's simply to respond one step at a time, following him in faith Walking the path that God has set out for us. We saw that this was what it means to be obedient. But even more than that, we also saw that this is a testament of the fact that God is a great provider. God is the great provider. God may test us. God may allow hardship in our lives. God may ask us to step out in faith. But in the midst of all those things, God provides wherever and whenever God calls he also provides in those situations. You see, the truth is uh, that the key to Abraham's faith, the key to his obedience here, is found in Genesis chapter 22, 8. And this is going to be a, a verse that we're going to keep coming back to this morning. Genesis 22, verse 8. It says this, Abraham, in response to his son Isaac, asking where the, the lamb for the offering is, responds simply, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. See, Abraham knew somehow, some way, without seeing the future, that God would provide. And he trusted that God would provide for him. And, and believe me, God did indeed provide for him. At the 11th hour, God provides a lamb for the burnt offering sacrifice. 
And even as God provides the lamb for the sacrifice in Genesis chapter 22, it also points us to a future lamb. It points us to a future lamb that God will provide. A future lamb that will be a substitute. A future lamb that is marked for death. And that lamb is Jesus. See, that's going to be our theme this morning. If you look at, at Scripture, you're going to notice that there is this scarlet thread that goes throughout the Bible. That's a, that's a term that one theologian from the 1900s used. I, I love that terminology. There is a scarlet thread throughout all of Scripture that traces us all the way to the cross. I love that imagery because first it reminds us that God is a great artist. God is a great artist who weaves everything together as a tapestry in, honor for, in order for his honor and for his glory. In ways that you can't imagine, ways that I can't imagine, even in the midst of our lives right now, God is weaving things together for his honor and for his glory. We see that in this imagery of a scarlet thread. But even more so, I, I love this image of a scarlet thread because it reminds us that the shadow of the cross is found in every passage of Scripture. But sometimes it's faint. Sometimes it is hard to see, like a single thread. Now, stories like this in, in Genesis chapter 22, rather kind of obvious for us, and they point us to the cross. But, but even in Genesis chapter 22, the main point of this passage is not to point us to the cross. Let me explain that. The main point of Genesis chapter 22 is to tell us what obedience looks like. The main point of Genesis chapter 22 is to tell us what faith looks like. The reflections of Jesus on the cross may be present. And as Christians, we, as we respond in obedience, as we respond with faith, that is primarily found at the cross and in Jesus. Yes. But if we were only to look at Genesis chapter 22 as a forerunner to the crucifixion, then we would be missing the point what's taking place here in Genesis chapter 22. As I mentioned last week, we, we, focus on this, we focus on this main point, that we can be confident that God will provide for us, and that indeed God does provide for us in Jesus. And this morning, we're going to take a look at this scarlet thread. We're going to trace this scarlet thread as we approach the most important year or cal- calendar week for Christians. We're going to trace this scarlet thread all the way to the cross, and even to the empty tomb. We're going to look at the ways that, that we can see reflections of Jesus here in Genesis chapter 22. I think that as we look at, at this text and we look at other texts, I think one truth is going to come to us. And at its core, it's this. Genesis 22 points, to us, points us to our greatest need and our greatest provision in Jesus Christ. Genesis 22 points us to our greatest need and our greatest provision found in Jesus Christ. You see, Genesis 22 is a story of God's provision for us in a time of need. And to use the language of the book of Hebrews, we see that Genesis chapter 22 is is in a way a shadow of a greater reality that is about to come. Let's pray as we approach God's word. God, we thank you for the words of Genesis chapter 22, and we thank you for the ways that they point us to you, And specifically, we thank you for the ways that they point us to the cross. God, we ask as as we look at this text now that you would be with us and that you would speak to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
I mentioned that Genesis chapter 22, verse 8, is an extremely important passage, verse, in, in this passage. Let's read it one more time. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Abraham says that God will provide the lamb. God will provide a lamb from God. And God eventually will one day provide a lamb of God. You see, in Genesis chapter 22, God does indeed provide a lamb for Abraham and for Isaac. But even more so, Genesis chapter 22 verse 8 points us to a time where God will provide the lamb of God who dies for each and every one of us on Calvary. Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 22 a little closer and understand this scarlet thread as it leads us to the cross. Now, if we were to split up into groups of three to five, and we were to just work our way through Genesis chapter 22, look at the different ways and the similarities that we see between Isaac and the similarities uh, between Isaac and between Jesus, I, I would say that most of us could find quite a few. We're going to look at some of those in a moment. But at first, it's important for us to understand a a theological concept uh, called typology. Typology is the reason why there are so many similarities between Isaac and Jesus at the cross. There are different definitions for typology. I think one is most helpful for us this morning. It is this. Typology is an old covenant reality pointing to a greater reality fulfilled in Jesus. Typology is an old covenant reality pointing us to a greater reality fulfilled in Jesus. Let's break that apart. First, typology is an old covenant reality. This is something that actually happens, something that's real and tangible in the Old Testament. It can be a person, it can be a ritual, it can be a location, a system, many other things. It's it's something that's not made up. It's an old covenant reality. Things like Isaac, as we're going to see, is is an example of typology. The temple is an example of typology. So that's the first thing. It's an old covenant reality, something that actually happened. Second thing, this is something that points us to Jesus, okay? So typology doesn't mean that it's a one-to-one similarity. doesn't mean that every single thing has to be the exact same. If you look at the example of Isaac and Jesus's crucifixion, there are a number of similarities but there are also a number of differences, primarily in the fact that Isaac is not sacrificed. Isaac does not actually die. The story of, of Isaac's sacrifice in Genesis 22 points us to Jesus, but it's not the same thing as Jesus. So that's our second thing. The third part of this definition is that there is a greater reality that is fulfilled in Jesus. Typology recognizes this, that there is something missing in the Old Testament. Or something that is lacking in the old covenant reality. I think in Genesis 22, it's it's clear there is a lamb that is sacrificed and substituted for Isaac here in Genesis 22. But that wasn't a permanent substitution. It wasn't a permanent sacrifice. It wasn't until Christ came and offered his life up that we see a permanent substitution for the sins of man. So something that is ultimately fulfilled in Christ Jesus that we find in the Old Covenant. That's really what typology is. Typology it can be abused. Uh, it has been abused throughout history. Uh, some of the most admirable theologians named the Puritans from the 16 and 1700s, they are uh, wonderful theologians, and yet they just completely and utterly abuse typology. 
They saw anything and everything in the Old Testament as typology, and it just wasn't right. If you want to look at good examples of what typology is, the book of Hebrews, chapters 2 through 9, are example after example after example of what typology is. What we see there is that Moses is a type of Christ. The sacrificial system is a type of Christ. The Sabbath is a type of Christ. The temple, Aaron, Melchizedek, many more things. All of these are types of Christ, old covenant realities, pointing us to something greater in Jesus. See, that's the purpose of typology, to point us to the cross. That's to remind us of something greater. As we look at Genesis 22, we see a number of ways that it points us to the cross. There are many ways that the story of Isaac and Abraham point us to the coming reality of Christ. Let's take a look at some of these and some of the similarities that point us to a greater reality in Jesus. First, Isaac is an only beloved son. Isaac is an only beloved son. Take a look at verse 22, or verse 2, excuse me. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Isaac is Abraham's only son after Ishmael is cast out. More than that, Isaac is Abraham's beloved son. We can see that Abraham loves Isaac deeply, that he cares about Isaac deeply, because this is the first time in the entire Bible that the word love is used. There's this great love, this great affection of Abraham for his son. And how does that point us to Jesus? Well, I think it's, it's pretty easy to make that comparison. Just like Isaac... Abraham, or excuse me, just like Isaac, Jesus is the only beloved son of his father. Let's go further than just saying, well, that's a a neat reality here. Last week, we'd spent some time looking at how difficult this commandment was for Abraham to follow because of the great love that he had for his son. Just think about how hard it was for God to let his son go to the cross. The great love that he had for his son. But also look at the great love that he has for the rest of his creation. How deep the father's love for us. Isaac is an only beloved son. Notice also that Isaac is offered up on Moriah. Isaac is offered up at Moriah. The same verse here in verse 2, we see that this offering is to take place at Moriah. If you do some research in the Old Testament, you'll see that the the location of Moriah is Jerusalem. More specifically, Moriah is the location of the Temple Mount, where the temple eventually is built. For nearly a thousand years, countless lambs and bulls spilt their blood on Moriah to pay for the sins of Israel. And then 2,000 years ago, from a place where you could see Moriah, one lamb came. And that lamb spilt his blood for us. No wonder Genesis says in verse 14, So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Friends, on the mount of the Lord it has been provided 
provided. Another similarity here. This is an act between father and son. This is an act between father and son. Take a look at Genesis 22, verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. What is it that Abraham says here to his servants? He tells them to stay behind. This is an act that only will take place between the father and the son. This sacrifice is only meant for Abraham and for his son, Isaac. It reminds me of the words of Isaiah 53, verse 10, where it says this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. The death of Christ for you, the death of Christ for me, is not a cosmic accident. It has played itself out the exact way that God desired for it to happen. It was a part of the plan in between the members of the Godhead, between the God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, to bring salvation, to restore the rest of creation for redemption. This is an act primarily between father and son. Notice what else? Uh, One more time. Verse 8. We see here. God provides the lamb for the sacrifice. God provides the lamb for the sacrifice. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Abraham believed that God would provide a lamb as a substitute for his son. And that is exactly what God did. And for us, in the exact same way, God has provided a lamb for a substitute for our sins. That's what we see in this view of heaven from Revelation chapter 7, when it says this. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all nations and tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs To our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Why is it that this text says that salvation belongs both to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb? It is because the Lamb has been a substitution for us. The Lamb has given us salvation by dying on our behalf. God has provided the Lamb. As we continue, we see that Isaac is obedient unto death. Take a look at verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. See, last week we saw that Isaac is a man probably of about 20 to 25 years old at this time. He is stronger than his father. He is faster than his father. He could overpower his father in virtually every way. And yet he allows his father to bind him. And he allows his father to place him on the altar. Knowing that he would die. What an incredible reminder of the complete and utter obedience of Jesus to his father's will. Reminds me of the words of Philippians chapter 2, and being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death 
on a cross. John chapter 10, notice Jesus' words here. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge as I have received from my Father. Jesus is following his Father's will and being completely and utterly obedient to his Father's plan, even to the point of death. The scarlet thread from Genesis chapter 22 leads us to the cross. See, we could look at many other ways that Genesis 22 points us to Jesus. We could talk about the similarity in age. We could talk about the, the wood that both of them carry that will eventually lead to their own death. We could talk about more things. But even as we see all of these things pointing us to Jesus, we are also clear that Isaac is not the lamb that Abraham mentions in verse 8. He is not the lamb that God will provide. See, in one sense, the, the lamb that, that we see appear in verse 13 is not the lamb that God will provide either. The lamb in verse 13 that is a substitute for Isaac is indeed a lamb from God, but it is not the lamb of God. It does not take care of the greatest need of Abraham and of Isaac and of you and of me. That lamb is coming. As you look and trace this scarlet thread throughout the rest of Scripture, we can fast forward a couple hundred years to the time of the Exodus. And here we see the descendants of Abraham, the descendants of Isaac. They've been in Egypt for hundreds of years, enslaved to the people of Egypt. And they begin to cry out for deliverance. And as they cry out for deliverance, God hears them. And God chooses to save them. And he raises up Moses as a deliverer. We're familiar with this story. God chooses Moses to be his mouthpiece, the, the spokesperson for the people of Israel before Pharaoh. And time and time again, Moses comes before Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh hardens his heart over and over again, refusing to let the people of Israel go. Plague after plague comes from God, and still Pharaoh refuses to change his mind. And then God sends one final plague. Let's pick up in Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 through 28. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood of the lintel and on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land, the Lord will give you as he has promised. You shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he has passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. 
Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. See, as you look at this passage and you look at the commands that are given here to Moses and to the people of Israel, you see that God is bringing judgment upon the people of Egypt. More specifically, he's bringing judgment on Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. And in order to spare the people of Israel, he says, you need blood. You need to take some blood and cover the doorposts of your houses with the blood of the lamb. And this blood is a sign of judgment for those who are not covered. Just as much as it is a sign of redemption for God's chosen people. You see, God does exactly what he says he will do. He delivers the people of Israel with a mighty hand. For centuries following this moment, the people of Israel practiced the Passover, remembering their salvation, remembering their redemption from the people of Egypt. And that's exactly what the Passover lamb is. It is a lamb of redemption. It is remembering the great redemption worked on the behalf of the people of Israel by God. Blood had been spilt to free those who had been enslaved. Do you see how this is pointing us to the cross? Do you see how the story of Passover points us to the cross? See, Jesus is the ultimate lamb of redemption. The blood that he has spilt has indeed freed us from slavery. No wonder Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are already unleavened, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Jesus, at his sacrifice, brings us redemption. There's a Jewish historian, his name is Josephus. He, he shows us really the significance of what Jesus has done for us. Josephus was not a Christian. Uh, he, was, he lived at the end of the first century, and, and he wrote a lot about the history of Jerusalem during the first century. He estimated that three million lambs were slaughtered every Passover in Jerusalem. Even though that number is, is almost assuredly an exaggeration, it tells us, just of the sheer countlessness of these lambs that are sacrificed each Passover. The amount of blood that is spilt each Passover. The population of Jerusalem would swell to tenfold its population. No wonder there are crowds that are extremely fickle as we read in the, the last week of Jesus' life. How uh, During the, the Palm Sunday as Jesus enters into the city, the people are rejoicing that this is a Messiah. And just a few days later, they're crying out to crucify this man. The amount of blood that is spilt by these lambs each and every year was a way for the people of Israel to remember their redemption, yes, but also to look forward to, long for their redemption from Roman rule. But we, who look to Jesus as our Passover lamb, do not need to spill the blood of multiple lambs, of millions of lambs each and every year. For the blood of the lamb has been spilt. And it's through his blood that redemption has come. 
We fast forward another hundred, hundreds of years after the Exodus to another mention of a lamb that we find in the Old Testament. Another lamb that is sacrificed on behalf of the people of Israel. And this is in Isaiah 53. It says this, picking up in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he would be cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This passage, Isaiah 53, more than any other passage in the Old Testament, points us to Jesus, reveals to us that Jesus is the coming Lamb of God. Notice the ways that it describes this coming Lamb of God. First, it tells us that this Lamb is acquainted with grief. This is a man of sorrows. This is a man who has experienced hardship, who has experienced grief in his life. And that's good news for us. Because when we experience hardship, when we experience grief, when we experience sorrow, we can rest assured that this lamb sympathizes with us. But even more than just sympathizing with us, we see that this lamb carries the weight of our sorrows to his death. That doesn't mean that we will no longer experience sorrow, but it, it does mean that we can be assured of a future in his coming kingdom where sorrow is no more. He is acquainted with grief. Second, he is crushed for us. See, this lamb that is coming is not just familiar with grief. He is crushed on our behalf. He is sentenced to death on our behalf. He is crushed for us. Next, this lamb is obedient unto death. We spoke earlier of Jesus' obedience to his father's will, how that mimics and mirrors the obedience of Isaac to his father's will. Jesus is completely and utterly faithful to his father's plan to bring redemption to his creation. This lamb is obedient and fourth and finally, this lamb is ultimately killed for the redemption of his people. This lamb is ultimately killed for the redemption of his people. This lamb does not die in vain. This lamb does not die without a purpose. This lamb has come for one purpose, and that is to redeem humanity. To redeem creation from the effects of the fall. And the way that that is accomplished is through his death. This lamb is for the redemption of the people of God. 
You see, as you look at the Old Testament, time and time again, you can see this scarlet thread, this thread referring to the blood of lambs, this thread referring to sacrificial lambs sacrificed for us. In Genesis chapter 22, we are assured that God will provide the lamb. And in Exodus 12, we get a little bit more of a glimpse here, and we see that this lamb is for redemption. And in Isaiah 53, we can be assured that this lamb is not far off. All of that informs our reading of John the Baptist's words in John chapter 1. When one of the first times that he sees Jesus, he declares this. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him, being John the Baptist, and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he may be revealed to, a, to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven upon him like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Behold the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. See, John's sole purpose in life and in death was to point others to this coming Lamb of God. And he does so right here with these words. Behold the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. It is this Jesus that God provides as his lamb. The redemption of Passover pales in comparison to the redemption that is offered through this lamb, through this man of sorrows who's crushed for our iniquity, through this lamb that the Lord provides. Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This Palm Sunday, I pray that we would let John's declaration of who Jesus is ring true in our hearts, that it would sink in in our thoughts and in our worship, that we would remember the purpose of Jesus' coming, that the King who is exalted on a donkey today is a lamb who was slain just a few days later. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We can trace this scarlet thread from Genesis chapter 22 all the way to the cross. Crystal and I have a book that we read uh, with Silas um, very, very often. It's a storybook Bible, and it's, we have a, a couple of those. This one's without a doubt my favorite. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Many of you may have it. And the subtitle says, Every Story Whispers His Name. And as I look at Genesis 22, as I look at Exodus 12, as I look at Isaiah 53, I can only respond, how true. Every story whispers his name. 
And as we, as Christians, approach the most important week of the year for us, let us remember that. Let us remember this Lamb of God who came to sacrifice for you and for me. Let us remember this great need that we have of redemption. Let us remember this beautiful relationship between the Father and the Son that we can see in Genesis chapter 22. And let us rejoice in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There are two ways that I want us to to consider as we focus our hearts and we focus our minds this coming Holy Week, this coming Easter, on what Christ has done for us. The first one is uh, through this little booklet. On your way out, you will see a booklet like this. It says, Beginning Family Worship. And uh, really just encourage for everyone to grab one. we got plenty. Uh, what we would love for each and every family to do, whether you are single or married, uh, without kids, or, or whatever your life stage, we would love for you to grab one of these and commit this coming week, for the next eight days, today through Easter, to participate in family worship. One of the really wonderful things about the Gospels is that they are extremely detailed about Jesus's final week. We know exactly what Jesus does on Sunday, on Palm Sunday, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, all the way through Easter. We know exactly what Jesus is doing and what he's saying each and every week. And what we have done as a church is we've taken the, the passages that refer to what Jesus has done, and we have divided those up, and we've assigned each passage a different day. And we would love for you to spend time as a family contemplating this, reading this, and remembering what God has done for us. There's more information in the booklet. We're going to be handing those out as you walk out, so be sure to grab one. So that's our first opportunity to to remember this as a family. The second opportunity I mentioned uh, this coming Thursday and Friday. We would love for you to join us at the Commons whenever it works for you, anytime between 6 a.m. and 9 p.m. on one of those two days, to take time as a family, as an individual, to remember the death of Christ for you. To remember the things that he went through on his final moments of life here on earth. And to remember the blood of the Lamb, which has been shed for you. As you approach uh, communion and as you approach the commons that that time, there's going to be a self-guided tour. Love for you to participate in that. If you don't have time for that, there is going to also just be communion offered there. We would love for you to participate in that as a family or on your own. Again, the hours are printed in the bulletin. It'll be available for you. Come and go. Stay as long as you would like. And remember who Jesus is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice greatly over the coming of your Son. We rejoice that you did not send your Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And God, we rejoice that the entire Old Testament points us to this moment in history that we are just now beginning to celebrate as we stand on the verge of Holy Week here in Palm Sunday. God, help us to rejoice. Help us to mourn. Help us to remember what Christ has done for us. What the Lamb of God has done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.